This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the reign of Queen Victoria, a young British naturalist travelled to remote parts of the world, collecting vast numbers of animals and plants in an attempt to understand where species came from and how they change. He published a best-selling account of his travels, and in 1858 proposed a theory of evolution by natural selection, an event which made the scientist famous and forever changed our understanding of life on Earth. The scientist I'm describing isn't Charles Darwin, although the facts fit his life as well, but his contemporary, Alfred Russell Wallace. Wallace was a remarkable, self-taught biologist, he left school at 14, who came up with a theory of evolution independently of Darwin. He was famous during his lifetime not just as an evolutionary scientist, but as the greatest authority on the geographical distribution of animal species. But since his death, his reputation has declined. Today, his name is far less well-known than that of Darwin, although arguably both men played a significant role in the development of evolutionary theory. With me to discuss the work of Alfred Russell Wallace are Steve Jones, Emeritus Professor of Genetics at at University College London, George Beccoloni, Curator of Cockroaches and Related Instincts and Director of the Wallace Correspondence Project at the Natural History Museum, and Ted Benton, Professor of Sociology at the University of Essex. Steve Jones, before we turn to Wallace himself, let's get a bit of background here. What were the dominant view of where species came from in the first half of the 19th century before those two got cracking? There was plenty of discussion of change. This was a sort of simplistic view that said everybody believed that in the, in the Garden of Eden and everything had happened on October the 4th, 4004 BC uh, with, a, with an act of creation. That wasn't true at all. Uh, the biological world, particularly across the Channel in France, was alive with speculation about the fact that creatures were related to each other and if they're related they must share, in some sense share ancestors. Um, but the great difficulty that those, nearly all those ideas shared is that they depended not on a sort of mechanism, a scientific mechanism, but on a vague, beneficent feeling of goodwill that there was a sort of force for life to get better. The famous proponent of that particular idea was the French biologist Lamarck, and everybody knows perhaps about Lamarck and his giraffes' necks getting longer because they stretch towards the, uh, the highest leaves, the inheritance of acquired characters. But in fact, Darwin kind of believed that too, but he didn't like Lamarck at all because Lamarck had this inner feeling that there was a, a force for life for giraffes to get longer necks to become, become, if not perfect, at least French, you know, in other words, to, be, to reach a higher pinnacle of being. And none of these people, great biologists as they certainly were, none of them had a mechanism. And what, what uh, both Wallace and Darwin independently came to was a mechanism whereby such changes could happen. So there wasn't as there wasn't one dominant view of where species came from that that hadn't kicked in as something to aim for and discover. There wasn't an explanation. There were uh, there was lots of speculation. There was lots of it got frightfully terribly close to philosophy, which is always a sign that science is sinking into the morass. Um, and re- really, Darwin and Wallace rescued it from that. Although I have to say, Wallace later in his life began to push it back in that direction. 
The, can you give us some context for Wallace's work? When did Darwin start in the idea of evolution and what's Wallace doing? Well, there's a whole industry which basically picks, uh, picks the lint out of Darwin's navel, really. When did he get the idea? When did he get the idea? In fact, um, the first line of The Origin of Species, which uh, reads, When on board HMS Beagle as naturalist, I was much struck with certain facts in the distribution of the inhabitants of South America. That actually is kind of an and evolutionary thought. Um, that, was in, that, was in, that was written in 1859. But he was yeah. in the 1830s when, 1830s, he, was, uh, when yeah. he was on the Beagle. And what about Wallace? When do we? When does he register? Well, Wallace, I think, work? had it, the idea much later. He was in the Malaya Archipelago at the time, um, and he was collecting many, many thousands, or more than a hundred thousand specimens, as a taxonomist, as a curator of uh, creatures rather than an analyzer of creatures. Um, and he had a, a fever one night. He recounts, and the idea appeared fully formed in his mind. It is in. Dates are impo- going to be important in this, so I might as well um, get this he right. Was, that was in about 1857, I think, or 1858, even. 1858, yeah. Yeah, 1858, yeah. OK, George McAlerney, would you tell us a bit about Alfred Russell Wallace's early life and his upbringing? Yeah, sure. Um, well, Wallace was born to um, downwardly mobile uh, parents. His father had actually studied to be a, a solicitor but never um, practised law because he had inherited a sum of money, and he made various um, bad investments and was forced to leave London to try and find a cheaper way of living. So um, he ended up in a, a small village outside uh, the town of Usk in what's now Wales, but at that time was actually part of England. And um, Wallace was born there on the 8th of January, 1823. Um, he was the seventh of eight children, only five of which um, survived to adulthood. And he lived in um, near Usk for five years, then moved to um, Hartford, where he had his only um, formal education at Hartford Grammar School. Um, but his, his father's finances got worse and worse, and he was forced to leave school when he was um, only 14. He then went to stay briefly with his brother in London and then got a job as an apprentice land surveyor with his older brother, William. And he basically spent the, the next um, 12 years travelling around southern um, Britain, England and Wales, um, uh, doing land surveying. And it's actually quite an important point because it was his only really formal training. And a lot of his later work, um, you can see, stems from his training in, you know, making maps, etc. And it was during that period of time that he got interested in natural history. At first, botany. Um, He bought some um, books on how to identify um, plants and formed a a small um, collection of pressed plants. And, it's uh, a fascinating example of an autodidact, isn't it? Because he's on this land surveying. He's, he, he has been at a grammar school until he was 14. His father was a librarian or something, so he, he, he knew about libraries. But even so, he's out on the road on his own and, and developing a passion for knowledge in this particular direction. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it was um, in about um, 1843, uh, I think, that... Uh, Land surveying work um, got scarce, so he was forced to um, uh, do some teaching work in Leicester, and it was there that he met um, Henry Walter Bates, who was an amateur naturalist, and it was Bates who got him really interested in um, entomology and collecting beetles. Bates said that a thousand species of beetles were found within a short distance of the town. Wallace was, you know, sort of hooked. 
Bates himself, can you give us just a tiny bit about Bates? Because Bates was a big influence. He was a mentor influence on Wallace's life. He'd come up against a man he knew a great deal about what he wanted to know a great deal about. And this man was willing to help him, work with him, and was his companion for a while. He's his professional companion. Yes, I mean, uh, Bates at the time was an amateur naturalist. He was... Um, I think his business was in um, hosiery. His father owned a, a hosiery business, and um, he um, he was a, a very keen beetle collector, butterfly collector, and he became um, fairly famous in in later years, um, especially for the theory of Batesian mimicry um, in butterflies, where um, uh, unprotected, tasty species evolved to mimic poisonous ones. So you, this man, was a much of an age gap between the two. They're in Leicester. They're, they're working. They decide. Then they're, they're going out on jaunts at weekends, collecting stuff. Yeah, exactly. They were yes. about the same age. Yes. And After you. and then um, Wallace uh, then moved to Neath in Wales and kept up a correspondence with Bates. Um, and it was in um, eighteen forty-five that Wallace then read this very influential book, book called Vestiges. <coughs> um, which proposed that uh, life on Earth had evolved from earlier forms but didn't give a mechanism. And it was a sensation in Victorian times. Everyone was reading it, including Prince Albert was reading it to Queen Victoria in the afternoons. And, you know, it was a hot topic of discussion. And it converted Wallace to um, be an evolutionist. He he thought this is an ingenious, you know, hypothesis that um, life on Earth has evolved from earlier forms. And he then set off um, in his, his mind to try and discover the mechanism by which this occurs. And it was then that he proposed to Bates that they both go off to the Amazon um, to collect um, species, study them, and try and discover the mechanism of evolution. Just before we go to the Amazon, this this book was published then anonymously, but we now know it was by Robert Chambers. Yes. And it did have a huge influence on, on Darwin, on right across the intellectual landscape, because, as, as, Steve, <coughs> as Steve Jones was saying uh, at the beginning of the programme, the idea it wasn't a, a, a dead move from uh, the world was created on a, a Wednesday, 666,000 years ago. People were drifting towards this landmark and others and fudging around in this area, but this boldly said, perhaps it's why it was anonymous, Look, there is an evolutionary thing, but he didn't say how it happened. Absolutely. And the, the book was important in preparing um, people's minds for what was to come um, next in later years, the, the, the Darwin-Wallace theory. Ted Benton, um, as George Wackeloni has mentioned, in, in 1848, Wallace and his friend Henry Bates travelled to South to Brazil. It seems rather bold for two uh, youngish men from, from Leicester. Oh, I think they were very bold. And uh, as we'll see as the programme goes on, Wallace was unbelievably bold, given what happened to him in the Amazon, that he was up for another tropical expedition very, very soon after. But yes, Why did they choose Brazil and what did they want to get out of it? Uh, they, in the correspondence between them, it's perfectly clear that both were interested in this whole question of the origin of species. And uh, Wallace was particularly impressed by vestiges, Bates much the less so. The book that uh, George yes. has been talking about, yeah. Bates much less so. Um, but I think Wallace was interested in it not so much because of the substantive account that it gives of evolution, uh, but because it raised the question that they could then collect facts and think about those facts in relation to this hypothesis that species change. Um, and that was the motivation for going to the tropics. It does seem bold in many ways that... Neither of these men had much, if any, money, but they, they went out and they were going to subsidise it. You tell us. Yeah, through collecting. Uh, and sending, and the sending back. them back. 
And uh, so there was a mania for collecting around this country, otherwise they wouldn't have had a market back here. Well, there were private collectors, yeah. but also the museums and uh, Kew Gardens were also interested in this buying... This is plants, these, animals, insects. Yep, that's right. So they collected particularly bird skins and insects, uh, but also some mammals and, and, and other groups, land shells, for example. Um, so they arrive in April 1848 at Para, which is now Belém on the coast of Brazil, and together they start to explore the nearby forest. I think it's within a mile or so of Para. Wallace says in his autobiography that the, the, the rainforest spread in all directions. And so they had a very rigorous collecting program and they uh, pin their insects and they, they skin the birds and so on. Um, and Wallace is particular, in his autobiography particular, particularly, he's very, very interested in the people. And this is something that was true right through his life. He's not just a collector of uh, birds and insects and so on. He's also a great observer of the diversity of human beings. And uh, George mentioned this few months that he spent in London with his brother. Well, who there... was a carpenter then, yeah. He was a carpenter mm. and an overnight socialist. And he was taken to a mechanics institute just off Tottenham Court Road. And he learnt about Owen's ideas. Uh, he became a religious sceptic on the grounds that, you know, who could possibly think that a cruel doctrine like everlasting damnation was something that you could could really believe in and, and, and was worthy of humanity or even of God. And so uh, he, he, he goes to the tropics, he goes to, to Brazil with those ideas already formed in his mind as well as the question of the origin of species. And he used his land surveying techniques to great effect there, didn't he? Especially yeah. on this one of the longest rivers in the world. Can you That's tell right. us about that? Well, uh, within about a year or so, for reasons that we don't fully understand and was never explained, Bates and Wallace actually decided to split up and to divide the labour. So Bates goes up to the upper reaches of the Amazon and Wallace uh, goes up to the, the Rio Negro and also to a tributary, which I'm reliably informed should be pronounced Uapes. <laughs> and that actually, uh, an attributary to that, takes him up into Venezuela. Which he um, maps brilliantly. Yes, yeah, that's, that's yes. the authoritative map for Absolutely. many yeah, years so to come. So he uses his, his, uh, uh, his skills as a, as a surveyor to do that. But the, I think the important thing that he encounters, particularly in the upper reaches of those of those tributaries, are indigenous people. So he's very struck in power by the diversity of people, all colours and shapes and sizes of people. But when he actually meets the indigenous people, he's awestruck. And uh, by he, what? By the, uh, the their physical beauty, by the wholly distinctive form of life that they have. So he spends a lot of time describing their material culture, their belief systems, their festivals, the way they paint their bodies. And he uses that as a standpoint from which to review his own critical relationship to his own society. But that magnificent tour ends in tears, Steve Jones, doesn't it? It does. He had, his brother went out with him too and he died. And it ended in, um, then in, fl in flames rather than in tears because he'd collected a vast quantity of stuff and uh, it was packed it all up, came back on a, sh on a ship across the, uh, across the Atlantic, and the ship caught fire. 
Um, and uh, nobody was killed, unfortunately, but his entire, almost his entire set of specimens was destroyed, apart from a white parrot, I believe, which, was a, um, which he kept. And uh, they bombed around on the ocean for several days before they were rescued. Um, and then he came back, then he, that brought him back to Britain. Um, but... Um, Remarkably enough, and he was a very daring man, within a fairly short time, um, he decided to go off on another expedition, but this side to the other side of the world, to, to Malaya. Must have been extraordinarily resilient. I mean, this is four years' work. Yeah. Uh, uh, an immense, and he got an immense number of rare specimens. So, so he is obviously totally truthful man. Yes, I mean and he all was a, went up in flames. You know, he, he, like Darwin, was a naturalist, and that's a that's a profession that's really almost extinct today. You know, we now see the living world, nearly all of us, biologists included, through the glass of a television screen, or by studying our own narrow specialisation, be it cockroaches or, in my case, snails, even more obscure. Um, but Wallace and Darwin could do the lot, and there's almost nobody left who can do that. I think that's worth reminding us ourselves. You know, they were at, in some ways at a peak from which we've declined in mm. biological knowledge. They just went out there and did it. And did it, yeah. And so he went out there and did it by going to the Malay archipelago, yeah. vast, where he stayed this time for 12 years. Yes, he went out in 1854. Yeah. Uh, he travelled thousands of miles. He visited places really never visited by Europeans before. Um, he became, again, as, uh, as Ted said, very much involved with the local people. He learned Malay, which is an extraordinarily distant language. Um, he had a close companion, a young person who helped him. Um, and his, his view in, Malay, in Malaya and indeed in South America of the local people was quite different from that of Darwin. Darwin, when he went to Tierra del Fuego, the southern tip of South America, made some damning statements about the Fuegians. He thought them to be scarcely human. Their language was like the babbling of an animal. Um, and, you know, the, the, their attitude is utterly different. But, of course, Darwin, in modern terms, was a millionaire. Uh, Wallace, in modern terms, would be on public assistance of some kind. He probably wouldn't be in today's terms. Um, but uh, they were very different in that sense. They're both attractive characters, but attractive in different ways. So he, he went there and he got his great... A collection together there, which is extraordinarily large, George Bacalonia. We're told 126,000 specimens. And this time he wrote out of that experience in ways, before we come to the evolutionary thing, he wrote, he wrote out of that experience and brought it back. He came back quite a wealthy man. Let's talk about the, the, the kind of his travels, the Malay Archipelago. What significance did that book have? Um, well, it, it's probably... Um the most cited book that Wallace wrote, he wrote 22 books during his life. Um, it's never been out of print since it was first published. Um, certainly his most successful book, and it's still read today by uh, lots of people who go out to Indonesia, Malaysia, etc. Um, and it's amazingly contemporary in its style. It's not sort of stilted, old-fashioned. What's it about? Um, it's an account of all his travels in Indonesia, what's now Indonesia and but Malaysia. But does he travel as a naturalist or does he tell us all sorts of other stuff? Well, it's about the physical geography, um, the biogeography distribution of animals, what he collected in the various islands, the people he encountered, um, the political situation at the time. It's remarkably far-ranging and... Um, I mean, he travelled an enormous distance, 14,000 miles on small native boats, etc., all the way from Singapore in the west to um, the, the, the western part of uh, the island of New Guinea. He was actually the first um, westerner to live on the mainland of New Guinea. 
Um, he had the extraordinary adventures, and these are recounted in this book. But strangely enough, even though he discovered natural selection whilst he was out in the Malay archipelago, um, evolution and natural selection is barely mentioned in his book. And also, um, as I understand from the notes that I got from the three of you, although he must have been in peril, taking great risks, that is underplayed massively as well. You well, typical to... British or um, sort of Victorian sort of understatement, you know, um, coming across poison snakes in his boat uh, at night, um, putting his hand on a, you know, a deadly pit viper, you know, he, he's very understated in his accounts. Um, well, he lived to be understated, didn't he, really? <laughs> yeah. Steve. I think we should also, I think it's fair to say, it's also a work of considerable literary merit. It's a really good read. It was, it's said to be uh, Joseph Conrad's favourite book. Now, that's quite something for somebody who could write like Conrad. So Wallace was a talented man. The, let's move towards... Uh, Sorry, Taylor. I was going yeah, to meet you anyway, but still away. All right, go on. <laughs> no, no, you say what you want to say, and then I'll, then I'll, I'll ask my question. Uh, just wanted to say something about his relationship to the indigenous people. He still uses this contrast between the savage and the civilised, which he goes to the uh, tropics with, but actually in both places that he visits, he shatters, really, the connotations of that distinction because he has this tremendous respect for the indigenous people and he uses them as a foil in terms of which to kind of criticise his own society. Um, and just going back for a moment to the Amazon, there's an extraordinary episode where he's with uh, a group of indigenous people out to try and shoot the cock of the rocks, which was this very beautiful bird that he was after. And in the evening they sit and they ask him about how the moon... And the earth and the uh, and the sun get back to where they where they started from after departing from us, and they they talk about where the wind comes from and the rain comes from. So he's having these really scientific conversations with the indigenous people, which is really I think really fascinating. And it goes further. We haven't really got time, but there's there's, okay. a, there's a record of him making friends with an Oran. Utang, a, a baby well, or an Utang, and actually in some strange, but not sickly way, and looking after it and grieving when it died and feeling that he, there was the likeness was between the two was very in, powerful. In, the, in that year, he actually matched both Darwin and Queen Victoria because uh, Queen Victoria went to London Zoo on occasion and saw the orang Matan, whose name was Jenny, and uh, she, she was quite shocked by the animal, painfully and frightfully and horribly human, she called it. So even then, and that was well before the origin, this no Notion that maybe you know Darwinian man, though well behaved, is little more than a monkey shaved. That was already coming out. Yeah. Ted, I've got, I've got to. We've, I'm awfully sorry, but okay. we've got to move on. <laughs> we've got to stay. Uh, we've got to. We've got to get to evolution. So sure. The, yes. There we go. Otherwise, this program will not evolve one little bit. Um, his first step was a, was an essay he wrote in Borneo in 1855. Now, can you tell us about that? It was published as the Sarawak Law, right? Okay. Uh, well, we know at the time, because there is an extant, uh, what's now called the Species Notebook, we know the intellectual struggle that he was going through, which gave rise to that paper. Um, so one this of is the, while he's over in Malaya, just so, on the Malaysian archipelago, right? That's right, yeah. that's right. Um, and, he, and this is during the rainy season where the collecting isn't going so well, so he actually 
struggles with these ideas and he makes pretty short work of theological arguments that explain uh, species and their adaptation as, 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 as the work of a designer or a creator. Yeah, we're still in that, we might, quite right of you to remind us, we're still in that time yeah. when religious explanations were held by very, very many people and strongly. That's right. right. But the real challenge for him is the work that perhaps up to that time had the greatest importance on him and Bates and Darwin himself, Lyell's Principles of Geology. And the key principle that underlies Lyell's geology is what's called uniformitarianism, which is that the forces that have shaped the history of uh, the inorganic world um, follow laws, and those laws still persist today, and that the changes that gave rise to the mountains and the uh, changes in the oceans and uh, the river valleys and so on... uh, were all gradual, bit by bit, no kind of sharp discontinuities, and according to law. And Wallace notes that if we look at the sequence of fossil remains, uh, they seem to follow the same kind of pattern. But Lyell is still at this stage committed to special creation of each species. And Wallace says this is just, he uses the word unphilosophical. How can, how can Lyle really have uniformitarianism for the inorganic world? He can see the fossil relationships intimately connected. And changing. To, and changing. And yet he thinks that each species, each of these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of species have been specially created. He said, what a, you know, what an odd unphilosophical idea this is. Steve Jones, sorry. Steve Jones, three years later, made his most important breakthrough. Can you just tell us about that? And and, and now we're moving right to the heart of the matter. Yes, I mean, I think after a lot of, of, um, you know, wandering in the philosophical fog, or at least seeing that it was philosophical Mm. fog, uh, he had uh, one of those rare moments of insight, which I'm told a few scientists have during their lives, um, when he had a a fever on possibly a small island off the major island where he was staying. um, And suddenly fully formed the idea of natural selection, as Darwin later called it, came into his mind, inherited differences in the chances of reproducing. And he saw that if one particular kind of creature um, inherited a constitution that made it more likely it would survive, find a mate, and pass on its, uh, pass on its uh, very being, its genes, as we'd say today, then those genes would become more common, and in, new t- in time, uh, new forms would arrive. And uh, he, 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 he corresponded with Lyle, and he then set, sent a... Uh, sent a, a letter to Lyle, which was passed on to Darwin. On the, he then sent a letter to he then sent a letter to Darwin, after having discussed it with Lyle, on the tendency of varieties to depart from the common type. And Darwin was so shattered to, by this. This is very important, because you've said... Um, is it on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original that's, type? That's it. Yeah. Now, why was that so significant? Because he had... A, in there was a mechanism whereby change could happen. That It was built into life was a system which balanced certainty and uncertainty, the uncertainty, these random changes we now call mutations, the certainty that conditions were going to change, physical conditions were going to change, and the way that this could was almost inevitably led to biological change, to evolution. It was simple. It was so simple it could even have been physics. The... (laughs) 
Students, who should stop saying that? Students never laugh. And when this letter arrived, uh, George Beccaloni, uh, things moved very, very quickly where they'd been moving slowly. And, and we ended, we're, en we're entering what seems to be a, dis a rather discreditable phase in the career of Darwin, some people think. Now, I want to tackle that, but not to dwell on it too long. So can you do it for us? Um, yes, yeah, sure. Um, so um, d uh, Wallace sends this essay to um, Darwin, which he asked um, Darwin to pass on to Lyle, because it was actually intended for Lyle's um, to read, because um, Wallace knew that Lyle had taken great interest in his 1855 paper, and this was um, a mechanism that actually explained uh, his Sarawak law that was proposed in the 1855 paper. And what happened next was um, when Darwin opened uh, the packet from Wallace and read uh, the essay that was enclosed, he was absolutely horrified because he saw that Wallace had there um, what he regarded as his idea of natural selection that he had come up with 20 years before but hadn't actually got around to publishing. I'd been making notes on it for a very long time. For He'd the been great making book, notes, yeah. Um, yeah, building up an enormous body of evidence to overwhelm the opposition eventually, but... Um, strangely enough, he was part way through writing a book on the subject, which was actually prompted by Wallace's 1855 paper. Um, anyway, he was um, so totally... already on a book that had been prompted by Wallace's first paper, yes, the Sarawak Law. Yep. and now this comes in three years later. Yeah, and Lyle had warned him in um, 1856. You know, Wallace might be onto something. You know, you better start writing for publication. That's why he started writing his big book on um, evolution. So anyway, he was um, hor horrified, sent an anguished letter to Lyle saying, you know, what am I going to do? My you know, life's work's going to be, um, you know, destroyed because Wallace has come up now with this idea and I, you know, honourably have to sort of publish it. And uh, Lyle then contacted um, another of Darwin's friends, um, the botanist um, Joseph Hooker, and together they hatched a plan um, where they would present Wallace's essay together with two... Um, f unpublished fragments of Darwin's writings on the on the subject of natural selection. At the same time, with Darwin given precedence. Um, yes, well, Darwin's um, um, material presented first, and they the introduction by Hooker and Lyle saying that Mr. Darwin had come up with this theory before uh, Mr. Wallace, and um, basically within fourteen days of getting the letter, without referring to Wallace. Of yes, I mean the, without the, sorry, without, that's wrong. Without. Contacting Wallace. Yes, without asking his permission. I mean, it would have taken time. It would have taken weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, but that's what I believe should have been done. Um, after all, Wallace had been looking for this mechanism for 11 years. And, you know, um, it seems really sort of very unjust um, today, as I think it did in, in, would have done in that um, time, to publish someone's work without actually asking their permission first. So uh, the... The, the paper, the essay, was um, read out to the Linnaean Society, as you mentioned, and then only a month later it um, was in print. And Darwin had had plenty of opportunity. He actually corrected the proofs of the paper, made lots of changes to his bit, um, and he consented to its arrangement. So I believe that, you know, he is sort of culpable. Um, is that something this. you agree with, Ted Benton? Uh, more or less, yes, although I don't 
think we should get too hooked on it. No, I'm not getting too hooked. Uh, I'm just clearing it up and then we can move on. I mean, Darwin was a a gent. I mean, he could afford to be a gent. I mean, he came up with... Well, he didn't behave like a gent here, Steve. Come on. Well, I'm not so convinced. I mean, the the point about Darwin was... I know Darwin is is the nearest you will ever have to a saint in your (laughs) life. That's true. But (laughs) even so... (laughs) But he he did suggest at one moment that the paper just just be published by Wallace, which would really have knocked knocked his priorities completely into a cocked hat. And it's also the case that people knew... The people that mattered knew that Darwin was doing this. He'd spoken to all the great figures in biology. Um, They knew that he had been working on this for years. So in some senses, in his own mind, he already had priority. But from from the modern world, from biology's point of view, uh, whatever the uh, political reality behind the event, it was absolutely essential because it's pretty clear to me that if he hadn't got the Wallace letter, he probably would never have written his big species book. If you read The Origin of Species, every now and again you're on page, you know, you trudging through this enormous book. There's a little phrase that says, I have far more information on this, but unfortunately not space to place it here. And you think, thank God for that. <laughs> um, and that's why, you know, that The Origin is such a marvellous book, because it's a popular science book. It's a, it's a long argument, and it works. And it works because Wallace gave Darwin an almighty kick. And I think we should remember that Wallace actually spent much of his life looking up to Darwin. He wrote a book called Darwinism. So I think it was a collaboration more than anything else. And the, the interesting thing about um, Darwin's Origin of Species is that it's actually a condensed um, account of um, the big book that he was writing. So he was able to produce Origin of Species in only 15 months um, after um, the joint paper um, because he, was a, he already had a, um, a book to condense it down from. And to point to another characteristic of Wallace, when he discovered this, he was delighted to be published in, in the same breath as Darwin, yes. whom he admired enormously. Yeah. As you say, Steve, he wrote the best yeah. book on Darwinism, yeah. the best-selling book on That's Darwinism. Right. Defended. I mean, scientists are driven Although by... he disagreed with Darwin, I'm going to come to that. Oh, he, he began yes. to disagree quite markedly with Darwin. Yeah. And in some, in, in some ways, he was, he was right. And, of course, in other ways, Darwin was right. Scientists are kind of driven by their egos. They don't like to... They don't like to admit this. In no. mathematics, there's a thing called the Erdosh number, and Erdosh was a famous Hungarian number theorist. And what you can do is link yourself through the papers published until you, you've pa- published with other people, until you get to an Erdosh number. And the, the number of papers you have to go through uh, shows how unimportant you are, the more they are. Mine, I have to say, is two. <laughs> not, that I'm a great, not that I'm a great mathematician, but Wallace knew about... Uh, Darwin was famous. I mean, you know, Darwin had written The Voyage of the Beagle, and Wallace was absolutely delighted to be linked with this marvellous character. Now, can we can we move to um, Ted Benton? Can we move to uh, where? So, in, in in a person, Darwin was immensely grateful. He said, "What a generous man you were! Right. I, I can't believe you're so gracious." Yeah. Now, let, let's are. get on with the thing. How did? Can you give us starting point of how they differed, a main difference, and why, and because Wallace held his corner in these arguments? Yes, the main. Uh, If we're looking at the papers themselves, the main and very stark differences uh, are that that Darwin begins with uh, human selection of domesticated species and uses that as the model, hence natural selection. Uh, Wallace starts with an absolute contrast between domestic species and those species in nature that have to struggle with every uh, ounce of their being to survive. And he says that's the the pressure that, that, that selection operates through the, the struggle for existence in nature. So that's one big difference. And it was a bone of contention between them later on. I mean, uh, Wallace says, look, you get 
misunderstood Darwin by this name natural selection. People think you mean that there's an intelligence in nature which is rationally selecting, and you're not saying that, but, but the metaphor suggests it. And so that's and one difference. Darwin's use of domestic animals, uh, Wallace, I'm being very, very encapsulated for you, uh, Wallace says it doesn't get anywhere, it doesn't change much. It's out there that things are really changed because of the element of survival, which in yes. a domestic thing doesn't obtain that much at all, and even if it does, doesn't matter all that much. Well, that's the, so that's one key difference then. And the other key difference... Uh, which persisted, and this is one where I think probably Wallace, as far as we know now, turned out to be right, and that's sexual selection. Uh, the competition, as Darwin put it in that paper, between males to have access to females. So it's not just whether you survive the uh, the predators and, and, and get food and so on, it's also whether you actually manage to find a mate. And Can we take that up with you, George? Um, well, these days people think that sexual selection is purely Darwin's theory, but interestingly, um, the modern theory of sexual selection has strong elements of um, Wallace's views. Wallace, uh, Darwin thought that um, organisms, uh, females, had an aesthetic sense, even butterflies, and they were choosing the brightest, most pretty males. Rather um, like us, you mean? Yeah, um, but Wallace couldn't accept that... Um, Things like butterflies, you know, had an aesthetic sense. Um, so he looked to natural selection um, to provide the, the answers. And um, he said that um, things like uh, horns, etc., were um, displays of um, the male's, um, you know, better genes um, in modern terms, uh, that the, the, the fittest males had the biggest horns, they were the strongest, etc. And those sort of arguments are now, you know, in the modern theory of um, sexual selection, and they originate from Wallace's rather than Darwin's I'm still not quite writings. clear about the distinction. Uh, Steve, do you want to give us a distinction? I mean, you know, evolution is, is never pure, it's really simple, and uh, there are elements of both, both these. It's clearly the case that females of some creatures have, a, have a, a kind of intrinsic preference for something. For example, if you take two species of fish, um, one of which has got a very long tail, uh, the males have a long tail, and which is probably sexually selected, uh, you, you cut off that tail and stick it onto another species of fish, uh, related species, um, in which the males don't have a long tail. The females of that second species see this male and think, cool, what a long tail that is. I'll mate with that. So that's sort of an intrinsic thing. But we also have this so-called handicap principle which George has told us, which is, look at these enormous horns I've got. Bloody oh, Look at those enormous horns. He must have good genes. Um, so, but I think... I think Wallace was right more was that Darwin was very keen on sexual selection in humans. And what we know about human evolution suggests to us that actually, compared to our relatives, we're rather calm. In many ways, we're feminized apes. The differences between the sexes in humans are much less than they are in chimpanzees, let's say. We have the same number of hairs as chimpanzees do, um, but ours are tiny. But male chimpanzees have these enormous bristling hairs. There are certain more fundamental issues, which is, this is before the 9 o'clock deadline, we can't discuss in detail, between the two, which is just actually Darwin's feeling that sexual selection was very important in human evolution was less correct than Wallace's feeling that it was less so. slow. George, you want to come in again? Um, yes, you, you asked what were the actual differences um, between their two theories in the 1858 um, paper. Uh, there, there were several, although the, the core theory, natural selection, was basically identical. Um, Darwin concentrated on um, competition between individuals, whereas Wallace um, concentrated on environmental change driving um, natural selection and evolution. 
And uh, another big difference was that Darwin thought that um, speciation largely occurred by what he called his principle of divergence, which was basically a, a theory of what we call sympatric speciation, where speciation is occurring within the same habitat um, uh, through competition between closely related um, individuals or species. Um, whereas Wallace um, believed more in what we now call um, parapatric and allopatric um, speciation, geographical separation of populations. And um, I believe that Wallace is probably more right than Darwin on, on this. Can we turn now, um, Ted Benton, to uh, very, uh, another book that Wallace wrote, which has been in print ever since, which is The Geographical Distribution of Animals, published in 1876. What's the importance of that book? Uh, well, first thing to say is it's a major uh, achievement. I mean, the scholarship involved is just enormous because he's collecting together information about the distribution of birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates of various kinds across the world, and he's trying to make sense of the patterns of their distribution. It's extraordinary, isn't it? In relation to mm. the uh, fossil record. <laughs> and so, I mean, part of it is, is zoological geography, where he looks at the different zoological regions of the world... And he finds there to be six. Uh, yeah, he uses someone else, this guy called Sclater, who was a big supporter of, of Wallace's. And he uh, tries to show how the distribution of different species in these geographical reason, regions can help you understand the geological history of those regions. And then there's another half of the book, which is uh, ge geographical zoology, where he takes particular families or groups of, 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 of animals and looks at their geographical distribution. So uh, this is to look at the same problem, in a sense, from two different angles, but it gives you different kinds of insights. And he, his, I mean, he's really regarded as the founder of biogeography, and he still has that status. And, in fact, there was something published in January of this year in the journal Science which updates Wallace, but Wallace is there in the title. So, And what's most remarkable, really, is he did all this before modern geology had been invented with the idea of continental drift. Now, now we know that the Earth is not fixed, um, but uh, Wallace didn't know that. He has some hints that the, that the, the, the shapes change. I once um, show, saw a T-shirt that said, Reunite Gondwana Land, okay, in, in Australia. And, of course, Gondwana Land was this big continent which broke up. And if we look at the uh, bio, modern biology of, the, of mammals, the, uh, it turns out that there are certain groups only found in Africa, certain groups only found in South America and so on, but you can trace them all to this broken-up continent, which, in fact, Wallace knew nothing about. Well, but, but he did hypothesise it, yeah. particularly if you look at the distribution of primates. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, you know, these, these ideas were already bubbling up from this. And I could, if I could just... I know no, you want to get on... I just <laughs> want to say, well, I mean, fi that terrible word, finally, Ted, it's come up, and I, I'm just going to have a very brief, if I can, from you, George. Why... Is it possible for anyone of you to encapsulate why his reputation in terms of an evolutionist has declined and diminished so much? Yeah, I have to be sure. It's not my fault. Well, I, I think it's Probably because is. of a period called the eclipse of Darwinism where people um, lost interest in natural selection until the mid uh, and late 1930s. And when it was re-discovered, um, people got interested in it again. People um, looked to the history, just saw um, Darwin's book and thought, ah, that's where it all came from and had forgotten about poor old Wallace. 
Well, thank you very much, George Bacaloni, Steve Jones, Ted Benton. Next week we'll be talking about the chemistry of water. Thank you very much for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.